So as uh, Libby uh, explained, Libby, by the way, is my wife. Some of you guys are probably too new to know that. And um, she's the one also that put together this amazing uh, devotional guide, The Lamb of God, which if you haven't gotten a copy yet, um, I think it'll really be a gift to you um, for you to just uh, continue this journey as we continue this journey uh, to Christmas during this season that we call Advent. And we're calling it the Lamb of God, a term and phrase that if you've been going to church much of your life, we've heard it all the time. And I think when you hear something so often, sometimes the shock value wears off because there's so much shock value in that term, Lamb of God. Uh, If you were here last week, Neil Martin um, and, and what he preached and taking us to Psalm chapter 2, uh, this, this text about the Christ who is to come, which is why we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And Psalm 2 gives us a picture of that king, uh, a king by which all the rulers and kings of this world, all the nations will bow before the, this, this king. The inheritance of the nations will be his. In fact, it ends with kiss the feet of the son, lest he be angry. And yet John the Baptist, when he sees this king come to the world, what we think he should say, what he should say, is there he is, the king. And he could even take on one of the great uh, clauses from the text, the lion. We just sang about the lion, the lion of Judah, but he doesn't. This is where the shock value is. He says, look, there he is, the Lamb of God. And uh, that's what um, we're going to be looking at. Why does John the Baptist look at this king who has come and call him not a lion, uh, but a king? And we're going to start in Genesis 22. It's a joy for me to go back to this text because the first Sunday of Crossroads, this was the text. And I'm going to warn you right now, this text is incredibly raw. I know people who have lost their faith because of this text. Try not to walk out this morning. Try to make it to the end, okay? Um, But today is going to be raw. Uh, We're going to get into the heart of our Bible and into the heart of God. Genesis 22, let's turn there and let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son. In fact, the way the the rabbis understand this is they, they say a dialogue occurred here and we only have the words of God, not the words of Abraham. But this is how the dialogue goes. Then God said, take your son. Which son? Your only son. I have two sons, the son whom you love. I love them both, Isaac. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there. The word in the Hebrew here is holocaust. Sacrifice him there as a holocaust on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut the wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, 
Again, third day, three is the number of resurrections. So the text is already giving us a little bit of hope. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw, our text says the place. But this isn't the place. This is the place. Uh, in Hebrew, it's ha-machom. Uh, this is the place where God, as we'll learn this morning, will eventually say, that's where I'm going to build my house, the temple. He looked up and saw Hamachom. In fact, Jewish people to this day call the Temple Mount Hamachom. Saw Hamachom in the distance. And he said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up. And said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Then they reached the place, Havahom, that God had told him about. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God That word has connotations of love. Now I know that you fear and love God because you have not withheld from me your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, Hamachom, the Lord will provide. And to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is God's word. You can be seated. I've read this text many times. I've preached it a few times. And even today, um, this week, as I read it, uh, it just literally takes my breath away. I mean, it begins with, 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 with those words, uh, God tested Abraham. And this is quite a test. God says, take your son and go to the land of Moriah. Um, I, I, I think this, this story right here is the first time in the Bible where, as you're reading, you now find yourself asking yourself this question, could I do this? I mean, this is just, this is raw. Um, the word here, when, when God says to Abraham, go, Uh, This is the first word that God actually spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's halak. It's the command form. It's lek. Uh, It's it's, it's the command for Abraham to walk. And the first time God spoke this to Abraham, when he said lek, walk, he said, Abraham, I want you to walk. I want you to get up and walk. I want you to leave Everything that you know, I want you to leave your father, I want you to leave uh, your family, I want you to leave 
where you live. I want you to leave comfort. I want you to leave security. I want you to get up and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Same word here. And we're talking now decades later. God says that same word, lack, walk. And this time he says, I want you to walk, but this time take your son, the son who you love, what's most precious to you. We all feel the horror of this test, don't we? I mean, the author wants us to feel the horror of it. Ten times the narrator repeats the word son. Your son. Your son. Son. It's repeated over and over again. You don't have to be a father to feel the horror of this test. But if you are a parent... I mean, it, it just literally takes your breath away. And if this isn't horrific enough, all that God promised to Abraham to bless him, to make his name great, his family great, and then through all of that blessing to bless all the families on the earth, it all goes through Isaac. Isaac represents everything that Abraham left. Abraham staked everything, his whole life, on God's promise to give him a son. And if you remember the story, they're 90 years old when God says this to them. Like, who believes that? Especially a 90-year-old. But they, they trust God. They wait. They wait months. They wait years. God, even during this promise, during this season, changes Abraham's name. His first name is Abram, which means great father. Uh, then it's changed to Abraham, which means father of all. That's like going from daddy to big daddy. Now, just imagine, okay, you show up at someone's house. Your name's daddy, but you don't have any kids yet. You're almost 100 years old, and they call you daddy, and you got to say, no, my name's not daddy anymore. Now my name's big daddy. <laughs> and God finally comes through. They have a son. They name him Isaac. Isaac means laughter. Of course they're going to name him laughter. I mean, think about how hilarious this is. Think about every time Sarah has to nurse. Think about, I mean, this 95-year-old this woman. Uh, every time they look at this miracle baby, I mean, think about the place that Isaac has in their heart. Every time they look at him, they see nothing but the goodness, the grace of God. And now God says the most out-of-this-world thing you can imagine and says, I want you to take Isaac, I want you to take laughter, the promised son, and I want you to take him to Moriah, and I want you to offer him up as a holocaust, a whole burnt offering. In fact, in the Hebrew, there's a little word here that the NIV uh, just didn't include. If you have another translation, it, it probably included it. Um, I... I think that this word is, is significant. It's the Hebrew word na, and na 
uh, means please. It's, it, it's not the mannerly please. When you say please and thank you, it's, this, it's, it's the passionate please. Uh, so when God says to Abraham, take your son, uh, not is in there. So that's why some of your translations read, take please your son. Now, in my opinion, our translators leave this word out because it's just far too uncomfortable for us to put God in that posture. It's too condescending for God to ever look at us and have to say, please. But I don't find this condescending at all because God isn't some stoic, passionless, feelingless God. God's heart is actually pounding with this request because God knows exactly what he's asking of of Abraham. And so the nah here, the please, it's the pounding heart of God. His heart is so bound to Abraham. And so what the nah is, it's God saying to Abraham, Abraham, I know this makes absolutely no sense. I know there's no way that you can understand this. But can you please trust me? And just think about our trials, the, the, the Mount Moriahs that, that God asks us to walk, those times of testing. And imagine in your hardest moments, the most difficult things that God has asked us to give up that maybe, just maybe in those moments, and it might even be the slightest whisper that God is still saying to us, can you please trust me? I know this makes no sense. Trust me, please. We'll all be tested. We'll all have trials. We'll all have Mount Moriah's that we're called to walk. And when we do, they, they really force us to ask life's hardest questions, like especially when you start getting into the realm of God. Like, God, why do you do this? Why, why do you allow this? Um, this does not make sense. Like, why does it have to be this way? Like, really? Are you seriously, God? Like, why do we have Genesis 22 in our Bibles? If you want my short answer to those questions, God wants our whole heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love me with everything you have. In fact, this is the first time that the word love is used in the Bible. And first usage of a word uh, oftentimes give, gives us the truest definition of that word. And when you look at uh, how it's used here in verse 2, take the son, the son whom you love, think about love and who love is referenced to. It's to Isaac. Abraham, do you love me? more than your son. Because what God wants at the end of the day is Abraham's whole heart, just like he wants our whole heart. And so when God tests us, it's for us. It's to show us the reality of our heart because that's what the test actually does. It it draws out of our heart our first love. It reveals to us our, 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 our true Lord and Savior. Because 
it's really easy for us to say this morning, yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. It's really to sing, easy for us to sing songs like, Jesus, you are my all in all, and, and I love you more than anything, but does the Lord right now function as your Lord and Savior? Because I'm going to say that anything that acts right now in your life as your source of significance and security, uh, you, the place where you derive your worth, the place you go to get your joy and satisfaction, that is your functional Lord and Savior. That is the true center of your life. And I'll be the first to say this morning, for me, I could literally be up here and name a hundred things that my heart turns to for my sense of worth, my sense of significance, where I run to, to get joy, to find satisfaction. And these really then, honestly, are the functional Lord and Saviors, the true center of my life. I mean, just think about how often our hearts say such things that I, I need this to be happy or I have to have this to feel like I'm actually worth something or if I lose this, then my life is gonna be over. And see, whatever our, our heart turns to, to find its, its, its sense of worth and value, uh, its identity, its security, joy and satisfaction, that's our functional Lord and Savior. That's the true center of our life. And another thing I was thinking about is this. You know, we can go to church our whole life. We, we can do a lot of things uh, in the name of God, and, and yet we can find out uh, after doing this even for months, years, decades, that, that we're really no different than after we gave our life to Jesus, that uh, all we really did is we exchanged one image for another image. We exchanged one uh, set of rules for another set of rules and behaviors. Uh, we exchanged one way of talking uh, for another way of talking, but functionally, if we're really honest, our hearts are unchanged. We're still just as angry, bitter, selfish, joyless, all those other things are still in our life. Why? We haven't given him, him our whole heart. And see, this then is the purpose of the test. Because whenever God calls us to walk Mount Moriah or to forsake something or to give something up, in those seasons, I get to see what's really in my heart. And, and that test actually weans us off ourselves, and it draws us deeper into God or at least gives a humble heart that opportunity. This is why the Bible over and over again says the test or the desert or the hard place or suffering is a good thing. Because only that can expose those lesser loves and wean us off our functional Lord and Saviors that will, in the end, if we think about it, never save us, never satisfy us. They're never going to deliver on what they promise. They're not going to love us. They're not going to die for us. And in the end, we're going to lose them. So why not offer them up right now? Let me just ask this question. Does God have your heart, your whole heart? Because if you want to see what wholehearted is, it's right here in the story, Abraham. It starts with his first words to God. 
He says, here I am. In the Hebrew, it's Hineni. In fact, three times in this story, God, Abraham is going to say these words, Hineni. The whole story here in Genesis 22 hangs on these words. Hineni, here I am. And that's not Abraham saying, hey God, I'm over here. Hineni means this. Hineni is Abraham saying to God, God, I'm all in. Whatever you ask, I am prepared to do it. Hanani comes out of a heart that is in total devotion to God. I mean, think of all the people in the Bible who actually respond to God with Hanani. Here I am. Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah. And what they're saying to God every time you hear this in the Bible is, God, you have all of me, I'm all in, and whatever you ask of me, I'm prepared to do it. Do you respond to God with this kind of heart allegiance? With this kind of devotion? Are you all in with God? Totally devoted to him. In fact, Abraham's whole life, if you know it, it screams Hineni. Uh, but look at this story. Look at verse three. After God puts on the table what God is asking him to do, verse three, early the next morning. There's no arguing. There's no pushing back on God. There's no questioning. There is literally none of that. God says it. Abraham does it. Hanani, God, I'm all in. Then look at verse four. I want us to get into Abraham's shoes to the best of our ability. Verse four tells us this is a three-day journey. In other words, for three whole days, Abraham feels the horror of this test. And yet he never wavers. Now let's ask the big question. You can't come to this text and not ask the honest questions. The first is, how can Abraham actually do this? What is it that actually gets Abraham up that mountain? Is Abraham a monster for act, actually doing this? Or even the hardest question I think you have to ask, is God a monster for requesting it? Now, at this point in the story, it's very important that we understand what Abraham heard. Abraham did not hear God say, hey, Abraham, for you to prove that you love me more than anything else, I want you to go murder your son. Uh -uh. He did not hear that. What Abraham heard, it's time to pay up. And we're like, what? What do you mean? It's time to pay up. The ancients had a very different emphasis, I'll say at least. They had a different emphasis on, on, on who God is, namely God's character. To an ancient, God first and foremost is holy, 
holy, holy. And because of that, they didn't look at their lives and say, God owes me. God owes me this. God owes me that. I have a right to this. Because God was so holy, holy, holy in their minds, they looked at their lives as they looked at this holy God and they knew in their hearts, it is me who owes God. In fact, in their minds, they, they, they thought they owed God a debt that is greater than their own life. Uh, it's the debt of sin that we all owe to this holy and just God, this is why the ancients had this law called the law of primogenitor. Uh, this law is the idea that God gets the first of everything. Again, he's holy. We're debtors. This is why throughout the Bible, God gets the firstborn of the flocks. He gets the firstborn of the herds. It's why he gets the first fruits. Uh, it's why God says, the first of everything that you possess belongs to me. Listen to what God instructs his people in Exodus 13, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offering of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. And then God in this... Uh, uh, request also gave them a gracious means by which they could purchase that life back, by which that firstborn could be redeemed. But the firstborn in their mind belonged to God. And here's what I have to say. Of course God is loving and of course God is gracious, but he is also holy and just. And when you add to that, that evil resides in the heart of every human being, whether you know that or not, we are all debtors. And to meet the demands of God's holiness and justice, we all owe God, whether we know this or not, something greater than our own lives. I say all this to say, so when God comes to Abraham and says, offer your son, what Abraham hears God saying uh, you are a debtor, Abraham, and it's time for you to pay up. It's time for you to offer your son. Now, added to this, and I'm looking at this through what's going on in Abraham's heart and mind, and we've already alluded to this. Isaac is the son of promise. This is why uh, Hebrews, when it's doing commentary on this text in Hebrews chapter 11, this is what it says. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. And even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's through Isaac that all God's promises to bless Abraham and not just Abraham, but Abraham's family and not just Abraham's family, but through Abraham and his family, God is going to bless the whole world. That all runs through Isaac. And those blessings are, are, are God's blessings of his grace and his mercy and his love. 
So you have that on one hand, but then on the other hand, Abraham has a debt to pay because Isaac is the firstborn. And that all speaks to God's justice. And see, this is the tension that's in Abraham's heart. This is the tension that's in the narrative. This is the tension that's in the entire story of the Bible. It's this tension between God's justice and his mercy, between his holiness and his love. How can a just God be merciful? How can a merciful God be just? Amen. What's going to win? God's justice or his grace? Our world today, our modern world, wants to say love wins. The ancient world would shout back at that and say no justice wins. At least what I want us to see this morning, that Without God's justice, evil in our world goes unpunished. And maybe from your place of privilege, that sounds just fine and dandy, but if you're the little person, if you're the poor person, if you've been exploited, if you've been abused, that's not good news. You want to believe in a God of vindication. You want to believe in a God who's going to bring justice. But then the other side of that coin, without God's grace, we all deserve that punishment. As the Bible says, the wages of sin is death and no one is righteous. No, not one. And see, this is the whole tension of the Bible. And this is also our tension Today, what's going to win? How can, how can either side win without the other side of God's character losing? Now, the story here, it's moving along really fast until you get to verse 6. And then all of a sudden, the whole story slows way down. Verse 6, it says, so the two of them walk together. Can you see them? Can you see father and son walking together? Walking, walking. Then in verse seven, the silence is broken. Literally, Avi, my father, dad, daddy. Abraham responds, Hanani, here I am. Isaac responds back, Hanani, their hearts are so bound together in this journey. They're in total allegiance to each other. Just walking. Both all in with each other. Total solidarity. Each filled with this un intense, unspoken love for each other. Isaac, see him, he's carrying the wood. Abraham, the father, is carrying the knife. And they walk. And then as they walk, these haunting words from Isaac, the fire and the wood, Dad. Where's the lamb? And this question, where is the lamb, is the heart of this whole story. In fact, Genesis 22 is a chiasm. 
chiasm is a fancy word of, of, of how the ancients would write narrative. Uh, it, they, they, they wrote story the way we would make a sandwich, uh, where you have bun and bun, and then let's say you do everything on both sides, so then you put the cheese, and then the cheese on the other side, and then uh, the condiments, you layer them in, and you layer them on the other side, and then you get to the middle, which is the meat, and this is exactly how they would write story, is beginning and end, and it would all just uh, kind of align itself, and it got right to the middle, and the middle of this story, at the heart of this story, is Isaac's question, where's the lamb? And this isn't just Isaac's question or, or, or the question of this narrative, it's also the question of the entire Bible, and Abraham gives the answer in verse 8. He says this to his son. He says, God will provide. Now we're getting into what's driving Abraham up that mountain. Uh, it, it's not sheer willpower. It's, it's not, I can do this. I got this. I can muster up all the faith. It's not about Abraham. It's about God. God. God will provide. God will do it. Abraham is absolutely certain of that. In fact, this word to provide literally means to see. And really what Abraham is saying here, and I think if any of us are in this story at all and imagine ourselves in this place, uh, Abraham's world has gone totally dark. I mean, he can't see. <laughs> He can't see why. He can't see what. He can't see how. Son, I can't see. I can't see. But God will see to it. God will see to it. That's what's getting him up. He is absolutely certain that God will provide. In fact, I want you to see uh, in verse 5 that, that little word, we. He tells his servants, we are going up the mountain and we are coming back. So in his mind, he's thinking, even if God is going to make me go through with this, I'm going to see something as amazing as a resurrection Because God can't break a promise and all his promises go through Isaac. And you know how I know he's thinking this? Because of the commentary that we have in Hebrews 11, verse 19, on this story. Where it says, Abraham, he reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. In fact, that's what Jewish scholars uh, believe about this story. Some of them is that Isaac actually went through with it. I'm sorry, Abraham actually went through with it and, and God raised Isaac from the dead. And Hebrews 11 is picking up on that tradition of, of rabbinic thought. But this is what gets Abraham up the mountain. He is so sure in his heart that God is good and that God will provide. And if you want to know the secret to being wholehearted, 
the only way that the human heart will ever be all in with God, where we give God our whole heart, is if we are convinced of two realities. Number one, that I owe a debt to God. God doesn't owe anything to me, but I owe him something greater than my own life. And that in that, the second reality is that God, God will provide. Even if I can't see because of the intensity of the, of the test, the why, the what, the how, that I am still confident that God is good and he is going to provide. And why is he going to provide? Because he loves me. Because he loves you. In fact, I know in a room this size, some of you are wondering right now, does God really love me? Because it seems to you like God is hurting you instead of helping you. Well, let me tell you how much he loves you. He loves you enough to provide the lamb. Look at verses 11 through 14. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over to take the ram. He sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Do you see God's amazing love in this text already uh, for Abraham? It's over. It's finished. On the mountain of the Lord, as Abraham says, it will be provided. It will be seen. God will see to it. In fact, literally, it reads there, he will be seen on the mountain of the Lord. And here's what we know this morning. As we look back on this story, a story that happened 4,000 years ago, we know that God provided more than just a lamb. Do you know where Mount Moriah is? Second Chronicles 3, God comes to Solomon, the king, and says, I want you to build my house on Mount Mor Moriah. Wow. So think about it. And I'll show you a picture of this right now. Today they call this Hamakom. Today they call this uh, the house on the hill. Uh, Muslims, because that gold little building... Uh, on that flat little area, we're looking at Jerusalem. That is right where God built his house, on the very place where he asked Abraham to offer Isaac. And today, that is also called Dome of the Rock because Islam has taken that story and said, yep, this is where Abraham took not Isaac, but his other son, Ishmael, and offered him as a sacrifice. 
If you know the story, this is where God's people throughout all the generations make Aliyah, where they come day after day, week after week, year after year. They come with their lamb to draw near to God. And they came in their minds as debtors because they owed such a great debt, a great as as great as their own firstborn, but it's here where God provided. Their firstborn was spared because a lamb wasn't. And so day after day, these lambs are sacrificed to remind them that they were debtors, but that God loved them, that God paid their debt. But here's the thing. All these lambs that were slaughtered, they're nothing more than a foreshadowing. They looked and saw in the distance. As Abraham, the text says in verse 4, looked and saw in the distance. These slaughtered lambs looked and saw in the distance a greater reality yet to come. A lamb to end all lambs. A lamb that would finally come and take away all the sins of the world. And in verse 12, when that angel says to Abraham, do not stretch your hand against the boy. Who says this to Abraham? Who says it's over? Who says this test is done? Notice the little word, me. Now that you love God because you did not withhold from, it should say, the Lord, if this is an angel, talking to him. This isn't just an angel. This is pre-incarnate Christ. In fact, when I combine the Jewish midrash of this story, uh, the, the way that uh, the, the Jews understand this story is that this is when Isaac went, went blind. Remember later in the story when, when his two sons come to get the blessing, uh, Isaac can't see. They say that happened here because while Isaac was on the wood, on that altar, he saw the Shekinah glory of God and he was made blind And Paul says the light of the knowledge of the Shekinah of God is in the face of Christ. And hear what Christ is saying to Abraham. Abraham, your little lamb Isaac is not the lamb who will win. I'm the lamb. That's my place. And 2,000 years after this story, this horrific test, Jesus will show up and say these words, Abraham longed to see my day. <laughs> what day? The day when God, the Father, would take his son up this very mountain. The Father and Son who walked together throughout all eternity. And on this day, the Son would carry the wood and the Father would lay his son on the wood and on this day, there would be no one to say, do not lay a hand on the boy. Instead, there were only cries. My God, my God, where are you? And on this day, the father paid a great price with his silence. And the son paid a great price with his life. And if Abraham could have seen that day, he would have said to God what God says to him in verse 14. 
God, now I know that you love me because you did not spare your only son. And Paul picks up on this in Romans 8. He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also provide us with all things? Listen, I'm a debtor. I owe God a debt greater than my own life. But this is what I know. He paid it all. And that cross is the greatest monument to the love of God. And God is not some monster. He's not some scary God. I mean, don't you see that he brought Abraham to this place for one reason, not to show Abraham how much Abraham had to give up for God, but how much God was willing to give up for Abraham. Abraham, I love you this much. And see, when the penny drops from here to here, this is why my heart can be wholehearted. When I see God doing this for me, giving up everything, not sparing his own son, gave up his precious, it no longer is I have to do this. It's I want to. God, thank you. Thank you that you show us your heart right at the beginning of the biblical story. And God, as we make our way to Christmas, God, give us eyes to see, open the eyes of our heart that we could truly know you and know all that you became for us so our hearts would just respond instinctively to that with wholeheartedness back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.